Would you like me to seduce you? That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. Of all the gin joints and all the towns in all the world, he walks in a mind. Why the rum always Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. It's a trap! Hey guys, welcome to the Celluloid Fiends podcast. I'm your host, Mo Long. You can follow me at Mitchell C. Long on Twitter and Instagram. And you can read my writing on film at cupofmo.com. And I write about tech stuff over at techuplife.com. If you haven't already done so, head over to iTunes or the Google Play Store, Apple Podcasts, your favorite podcast app, and go ahead and subscribe as well as leave us a rating and a review on iTunes because it really helps us out. And you can follow us at Celluloid Fiends Podcast on Twitter and Facebook and Celluloid Fiends Pod on Instagram. And tonight in the studio, I have... Hey, celluloid fiends, it's Wes Clifton, and y'all know me, know how I earn a living. I'm a musician, I'm a writer, and I'm a film fisherman. Actually, I earn a living at none of those things. Uh, If you want to find me on social media, you can check me out on Instagram at Cliff Weston. And if you'd like to look up some of my fiction writing, you can do so at wdclifton.wordpress.com. Highly recommend checking it out. So, Wes, what all have you watched of late? Well, most on my mind, I just returned from the um, on-set cinema event for Friday the 13th Part 6. Our friend Kenny, who uh, has the Myers House NC, does this series of uh, showings of films across the country at the location where it was shot. So... This past weekend, we all went down to the little camp in uh, oh, it's at Hard Labor Creek State Park in uh, Georgia, where Friday the 13th Part 6 was shot, and we watched Friday the 13th Part 6 on a screen right in the middle of camp, and then we actually even watched Friday the 13th Part 7 afterwards. Uh, so it was a really great time, and I love those movies, and it was really neat um, seeing it on the spot, like in the middle of the camp where it was filmed. Uh, it was a great place. We could be outside and socially distanced, and it was a really good time, so I recently watched those two, and I, let's see, what else? I watched a movie called Deep Shock, which was a short film. Um, Listeners to the podcast who enjoyed our Deep Red episode and who are uh, fans of Jalo films, Deep Shock. There is actually an older movie called Deep Shock, but I'm talking about the newer um, short film. It's sort of a tribute to Jalo films, and I would recommend checking that out. It's a pretty good time. Uh, and I watched a, an action movie called Showdown with Billy Blanks, which I'm also told is called sometimes called American Karate Tiger. And uh, and then you and I watched a, a film that we mentioned on the last episode, Bruno Mattai's Shocking Dark. A um, We virtually watched, I should say, for the crowd. I had a virtual movie night and watched Shocking Dark, uh, which is a really weird Aliens and Terminator knockoff. And having watched... Alien and Aliens shortly before we had our virtual movie night, I can confirm it is a very shameless Aliens ripoff, but it's actually 
I would say very much worth watching as long as you're okay with low budget films, because it was hilarious seeing kind of a different interpretation of all of that. Yeah, I um, I don't know. I just love stuff like that. And I mean, leave it to Bruno Matai to just make, as you said, a, just a shameless Aliens ripoff, but then somehow still shoehorn a Terminator in there. It was uh, pretty wild. It was completely off the wall. And it, uh, like, like Wes was talking about, if you have any interest, definitely hit up an onset cinema screening. If you go to MyersHouseNC.com, there is a tab at the top of the page for onset cinema, and you can check out upcoming screenings and get tickets. It is definitely worth it for anyone who is a cinephile like us. Yeah. And it's a blast. Like, I mean, you know, I went to the one for the mutilator last year, which is one of my favorites. And then this year going down there and, and seeing Friday the 13th part six, I mean, it's just a really great time. And, uh, I, you know, I know the world is kind of, is kind of crazy right now, but you know, it's a, you were able to social distance and spread out and it was really great. And um, so just a good time, definitely worth checking out. Uh, and then in terms of recent pickups, I uh, went down to a, a sale at the little shop of horror in Durham here, not far from us and uh, bought uh, jaws two and an old Friday the 13th knockoff called bloody murder that I've always loved, even though it's crap, both of those on VHS. Um, and then I picked up a movie called, uh, Kuro Obi, which means black belt in Japanese, which is supposed to be a um, a karate film that actually uses like real actual, you know, karate practitioners and real karate. So I'm excited to see that. I haven't watched it yet. And I was able to pick up the vinyl release of the Seven Notes in Black uh, score, Fab- uh, the Fulci movie, the psychic uh, Seven Notes in Black, the Fabio Fritzi score to that on vinyl. I'll have to give that one a watch. Of oh, the psychic? Yeah, dude, you would love it. I think I think you would really like it a lot because I know you like Jalo, and it, it's a really interesting Jalo. Yeah, I'll I'll check that one out for sure. And that's awesome that you made it over to Little Shop for uh, their going out of business sale. Well, actually, this was right before she announced her going out of business sale. So I was there and bought those tapes for a, a sale she was having just to clean out some inventory. And then like the next week, she announced the going out of business sale. So I think that's still going on this weekend. And, and I'm hoping to get back over there and, and just make one last sweep. But we'll see. Uh, I would like to do that as well, just to a flesh out my film collection. Not that it needs any more fleshing out, but... <laughs> <laughs> always can make room on the on the DVD and Blu-ray shelf, but also to just kind of support Little Shop. Uh, I'm really sad to see it leave downtown Durham. It has been one of my favorite spots since I found out about it. Uh, and I think that's a void that cannot be filled. Yeah, agreed. And, and, you know, Melissa has been really great. Uh, you know, she's helped me track down so many tapes that I've wanted. Um, you know, one day I just mentioned to her, you know, that I wanted a copy of sleepaway camp and, um, uh, hell night. And honestly, I forgot that I even said that to her. And then like a couple weeks later, she sent me a message and was like, Hey, you know, I've got, uh, sleepaway camp and hell night here for you on VHS if you want them. And so I came in and grabbed those and, I got my copy of the mutilator over there. So you're right. It's just such a a great little shop. I'm sad to see it go. Yeah. I don't think you can kind of replace that, that sense of community that Melissa had really fostered with the little shop. Uh, And so I actually have not picked up pretty much any movies or, or vinyl of late. Haven't picked up anything on hard copy. I need to rectify that in the upcoming weeks. Uh, I have, I've watched a, a number of things 
I was really excited about the new Mulan film that hit oh. Disney Plus. So I ended up watching that. And in the spirit of the retro film series over at Carolina Theater of Durham, I had I made that into a double feature and rewatched Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Oh, nice. Afterwards, uh, I also I rewatched Jurassic Park, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I that one to me just says infinite replay value. And I feel like every time I revisit it, I get a little bit more out of it. Uh, I watched The Meg, which was that I think it was a 20, I want to say 2018 film. Something like that. Yes. uh, And starring Jason Satham and a number of other folks about a megalodon that is discovered in the ocean, in the depths of the ocean. And I watched Fantasy Island. I've been trying to catch up on some of these newer releases that I had wanted to go catch in theaters and just for whatever reason missed. Yeah, man. Um, I feel like I want to ask you about the Meg and about fantasy Island, but the, I remember when the Meg came out, seeing the trailer and thinking like, this looks a lot like jaws 3d, <laughs> like just like on steroids. <laughs> so, you know, it, it pretty much was, I can't say that it was a great film, but at the same time, it wasn't terrible. It was it was kind of middle of the road. Uh, it, it was it was a very fun film to watch, even if it was a bit forgettable. Yeah, I mean, I'm a Jason Statham fan. Like, uh, honestly, Hobbs and Shaw was one of my favorite movies of last year. So, I mean, I'm down to watch it. I just somehow have not gotten back around to the Meg yet. I think you'd probably enjoy it. I definitely think you would. Oh, another one that I watched was The Prodigy, the new one. I don't even think I don't even know if I've heard that of that. It's one of those uh, demon kid kind of films, oh. and it I, it didn't really reinvent the genre at all. It was very similar to pretty much every kind of supernatural horror film like like that, ranging from The Omen to the Conjuring series, uh, but it was just really solid. So I, it, it didn't break new ground, but it didn't really need to. It just kind of stuck to the basics and was incredibly well executed. Yeah, straight up. Sometimes I don't need a movie to just like absolutely reinvent the wheel. Sometimes I just want to watch a, uh, something that does something I love and does it well. Agreed. And even it, it had the old school Orion logo at the beginning. Oh, love that. And the opening and the closing title cards were just really simple red lettering on a black background and it just kind of took me back to a lot of those 70s supernatural horror flicks that kind of got me into the genre like the changeling and 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 the manitou and stuff like that so yeah that that is one that i think you would probably really dig sweet i'll tell you what man i cannot believe until you just said that about the orion logo i cannot believe that i left out i also went and saw the new bill and ted at the drive-in um recently and that movie was rad i loved it have you seen it yet no i need to check that out i've been pretty excited about it i've been pretty jazzed but i I haven't gotten around to watching it i know it's new so i'll give no spoilers and i don't want to be one of those dudes who amps up a movie too much uh and then people are disappointed by it so i will simply say that it was it was just what i wanted it to be i'm very pleased to hear your feedback on that because that is a film that as much as I've been wanting to watch it, 
I've, I've been approaching it with a little bit of trepidation. Yeah. Because it's it's such a beloved franchise. And, you know, any time that they bring back a franchise like that after so long, you never know what you're going to get. Sometimes it's worth watching. Sometimes it's just trash. But uh, this one I was very pleased with. I am really pleased to hear that it has a good payoff. And now, our feature presentation. And tonight, we are talking about the 1975 classic Jaws. This has a 98% critic rating and a 90% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, both of which I think are far too low for this film. Agreed. It had a budget of $9 million and made a whopping $472 million at the box office. And the plot of this film is that a great white shark terrorizes Amity Island. At a beach party on Amity Island, a young woman, Chrissy Watkins, goes skinny dipping, and while swimming, she's attacked by a shark. The next morning, police chief Martin Brody is called in when her remains wash up on shore. After the medical examiner rules Chrissy's death the result of a great white shark attack, Brody begins closing the beaches. But Mayor Hamilton protests on the grounds that it will hurt the economy. Reluctantly, Brody agrees. However, a young boy, Alex Kittner, is chomped by the shark. And Brody, along with local fisherman Quint and oceanographer consultant Matt Hooper, set sail on Quint's boat, the Orca, to find and kill the shark. Bravo. So, uh, this was a Mo pick. Mo, why did you choose this fantastic movie? So I have been wanting to uh, talk about Jaws on the podcast for a while. Uh, I have kind of a funny story about my first experience with it, which is that I didn't actually make it all the way through. So I was probably in middle school at the time, and this was back in the VHS era. So my parents had this, they'd gone to Best Buy and and purchased this 13-inch white uh, TV VCR combo so that we could like bring it on the back porch at our house and watch movies. And one summer night, my mom and dad decided that it would be fun to introduce my sister who is three years older than me and myself to jaws. So we get to the part where Alex gets killed and my sister gets upset and makes them turn the film off. And we had to go inside and watch the Disney animated Cinderella. And so I didn't get to finish the movie And it wasn't until years later when I was in university that I got to actually watch Jaws all the way through. And from the moment that I watched it to start to finish, I absolutely fell in love with it and and just loved everything from the characters to the soundtrack to the sense of adventure and made it an annual tradition to rewatch it every summer. Yeah, listeners, that's a one. That's a great story, by the way. I always love, um, 
I love stories like that. Like I love hearing stories about when people first found out about movies. And uh, I have a similar uh, story about getting Excalibur one year for Christmas and trying to watch it with the fam. But we had to turn that off uh, because it got a little it got a little scandalous in places. Um, but oh, no. Yeah, dude, I, this. So listeners should know that this is one of your top favorite movies, one of my top favorite movies. We've been joking for weeks about how we were going to do this movie, and it was basically just going to be us uh, just fanboying out about it for probably six hours. So strap in, uh, listeners. We uh, we both love this movie, and uh, we were going to do it back in, in July. You know, it's a July movie, and it just th- one thing led to another, uh, and, it, and it didn't happen for us back then. But I, I think it's a fitting way to kind of close out the summer. Closing out the summer, just like they were closing down the beaches. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so like uh, when I was watching some of the special features about this movie, people were talking about, you know, uh, one person that stuck out to me was the drummer from Anthrax was on one of the documentaries I watched talking about the first time he ever saw it. But I often struggle to remember like those stories from when I was a kid and first and first saw a movie and I don't know exactly when I first saw Jaws, but one thing that always stands out in my mind because it's so silly and such a good example of kind of just how effective this movie is, is I used to go to daycare in the summer and once a week we would go to um, so like, you know, all day daycare during the summer. And, and, and once a week we would go to the swimming pool and just have like a pool day. And I remember for some reason the daycare showed us Jaws and then took us to the swimming pool. So I'm like a little kid. I'm probably, I don't know, 10 years old. Who knows? And they show us Jaws and then take us to the swimming pool. Now, yes, can a shark get in a swimming pool? Probably not. But to my little kid mind, I'm just like the whole day. I'm just like, oh, man, is is it safe to go in the water? And I remember just being like really worked up about, about Jaws from that. Um, but it wasn't a movie that necessarily entered like my film world like it wasn't one that i throughout my teen years would come back to or anything like that and then about four summers ago me and you and several of our friends went to the rialto here in raleigh and watched it on the big screen and i hadn't seen it in years and i remember just sitting in the theater being like this movie is incredible and ever since then, like you, I, it's my mission every summer to see it on the big screen at least once. And it, it took a lot this year, but I was able to go see it at the drive-in. Uh, the Raleigh Road Outdoor Theater showed it, and I was able to see that. And so that was just a blast. And it's just, it's so good. That was so much fun when we saw it a few years back at the Rialto. But I'm, I'm so confused. That is the most illogical choice ever to show Jaws. Why did they do it? I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, there are two parts of this that don't make any sense. One is showing little kids jaws. Yes. Right? Yeah. And then the yeah. other the other part that just compounds the situation is bringing them to the pool afterwards. Why did they do it? I have no idea. Like, in my head, I've thought about it so many times. Like, what was the thought process? But I'm kind of glad they did because it's kind of a neat little memory. But who in your daycare pissed off? the instructor that much i have no idea i have no idea probably some of us little bad kids (laughs) yeah yeah but that see that's really hilarious that we both have these really memorable moments of first discovering this film yeah Uh, Yeah. and actually uh this was not me experiencing it for the first time but a few uh maybe two or two years ago or something like that one of my roommates at the time had never seen Jaws before 
and it was playing at Carolina theater. And, uh, I had, a t- I was going and I was like, Hey, you want to come? So he tagged along and it was kind of, it was kind of fun watching it with him because he was jumping in certain spots and it, I could just tell from his reactions during the movie that this was a film that was still effective. Cause like yeah. I find, I find it still effective, but I'm also just like a complete sucker for jaws. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I had a similar uh, experience a few years ago. I don't even remember which ones of my friends that I took to see it uh, uh, at the Alamo and kind of the same thing. Like they were just talking about how great it was. And then, like I say, for me, it was only about four summers ago that seeing it on the big screen. I mean, it just hit me like a bolt of lightning. Like it's like I had always known about Jaws and always known it was a big deal. And I'd seen it as a kid, but I don't know, man, just seeing it in that theater on the big screen, it just struck me like how powerful of a film it is. It, It really does have uh, probably unrivaled lasting power when it comes to cinema. And, and one of my biggest questions about this movie is what genre is this? It's a great question. It's a great question. I had written it down in my notes as well. Because uh, in, in my opinion, it's a drama because it's, it's very much about the characters and, and the setting. Uh, and it has this sense of adventure, which would go on to become and previously was with Spielberg's earlier films before Jaws, but this would come to be what Spielberg was known for is having these films that were awe inspiring and had this kind of grandiose sense of adventure about them. But the intriguing part about Jaws is that it also, it has some kind of horror elements in there. And this has been a film that's really been adopted by the horror community. And it all, it often baffles me a little bit because I get that, you know, the, the shark poses a threat, but I don't think I would call this a horror film. I am one of those. Uh, I'm one of those horror community kids that uh, has embraced this movie. And I have always used this as one of my movies when people are like, Oh, I don't like horror movies. They're trash, whatever. I'm like, Hey man, Jaws is a horror movie and it is a, a straight up masterpiece. Great movie. Just I use it as proof that a horror film can also be a great film. I mean, I, I get your point because this movie is so much more than any box you can try to put it into. But I've always thought of it as a as a horror film and um, it definitely has the adventure elements. I definitely see the drama elements because it is such a character driven um, film. But but if I'm thinking about just a, it's hard to put it into a box. But if I was going to put it on the shelf somewhere, I would put it in horror. I think. Okay, I mean, I can I can definitely see that argument. And one thing that I really liked was what you said about kind of using Jaws as a bridge to horror films because the two of us both enjoy a ton of different genres, including yes. including horror, which can be very polarizing, but. I think there's kind of a misconception that a lot of people have that horror films are all slasher films, which is not true. Yeah. You know, there are some that are kind of more campy and silly. There are some that are kind of more just tense. And I think Jaws is one of those that it does have a lot of tense moments in it. And uh, it maintains that tension 
very well throughout its entirety. I in the documentaries that I was watching, um, Carl Gottlieb, uh, one of the several screenwriters who uh, worked on the film, it made a reference um, more than once to another horror film that I think has come to be accepted as a, as a great film, which is Psycho. And he said that, you know, he wanted to do for the ocean and for swimmers what Psycho did for going into the shower alone. He wanted to make a movie that would just make people terrified to go uh, in the water. And I think he was successful. Yeah. And uh, that I think is, is one of the big areas that this film succeeds uh, it did upon its release and continues to do now because it you know it, this didn't have any sort of supernatural villain in there it was just a an enormous shark and i think the that was just so grounded in reality that a lot of people did have a fear of going in the water even the tagline was just when you thought it was safe to go in the water yeah it's terrifying i mean it is terrifying in a lot of ways and I mean, I would be lying if I told you that when I go into the ocean, if I if I denied that I don't sometimes think about Jaws as I'm stepping into the ocean and be like, oh, but I still go. But uh, I mean, as long as you don't hear that ominous John Williams overture as you're getting in the water, I think you're probably OK. I'm always listening. <laughs> you you got to listen. That, yeah. That's the that's the big area. You got to listen when you're at the beach for that. Now, so the other question that I always have about Jaws, alongside what genre it is, is this the perfect film? I have heard you ask that before. And so before I weigh in on that question, I would like to hear your thoughts. I I 100% think this is the perfect film, the quintessential film, if you will. And uh, the reason I think it's the perfect film is uh, a little bit of what we were just discussing is the way that it blends genres so well. And it, it does everything right. It has character development. The, the effects have aged incredibly well. It has this magnificent soundtrack that hits all the right notes. It establishes a very concrete sense of place. There's, a lot of character evolution throughout the film. And uh, one, one other area that I think it really just absolutely nails it is the way that it's so timeless. And I'm not just talking about the technical aspects of filmmaking, but I even see some parallels between what happened in, uh, in Jaws and kind of what's going on, currently with the whole coronavirus situation, right? Like Brody wants to shut the beaches down because he realizes there is a threat posed to the, uh, the locals on, on Amity. And, uh, the mayor balks at that idea and says that it will hurt the economy. And then Alex Kittner gets eaten by the shark. And it, it kind of reminds me the way that, uh, of what's going on now with people not wanting to kind of close down and not wanting to wear masks and saying that it'll hurt the economy. Yeah, I, I definitely could see that. And and you're right. I mean, it, it's a timeless story. Uh, it's it's a it's one of those stories that gets the human condition right. Um, 
And I, I'm sorry, I got distracted when you were talking because a huge spider just dropped down on a little web from my ceiling and distracted me. But I am uh, prone to agree with you. I, I think if a perfect film exists, this is it. I mean, I just think that every aspect of this movie is what I would want it to be. Um, as I said earlier, it's it's not just a horror film. Um, and, you know... It's not it, it's not just an adventure film either, which is another thing I love is a sense of adventure. This is a movie where the acting is right, the directing is right, the music is right, the setting is right, everything is right. And the thing that that I thought about when you had asked me this question, I spent some time thinking um, about it. And I just, you know, I, I want to say that what separates this movie from other movies and from some of its imitators that that came out later that I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit is that this is not this is not a movie about a shark uh, even though on the surface it, it may seem to be one this is not really a movie about a shark this is a movie about three characters about their town and about a seeming them facing up against a seemingly insurmountable obstacle I think it's a movie about mankind and mankind struggle against insurmountable or seemingly insurmountable challenges and obstacles and overall about just the triumph of the human spirit, which I think is a timeless message that everyone can relate to. I absolutely agree with what you just said. And I think that's a, a common misconception actually about Spielberg's films. Like if you look at even his earlier films before Jaws, which uh, I think the Sugarland Express was one of those. Yeah, right. And, and I can't remember. Duel. Duel. Okay. Thank you. I, I was, I was blanking on that because yeah. I remember I was watching one of the uh, behind the scenes featurettes, which I think we, we both watched the same one and, and Spielberg was talking about uh, a duel, how he kind of wanted um, Jaws to, he kind of saw Jaws as like the next evolution of, of uh, where what he did with Duel. But in his films, even if you look at like Jurassic Park, uh, it's it's all about the characters and the like you were saying, the human condition and kind of overcoming these seemingly insurmountable obstacles. Like it's not about the shark. It's not about the dinosaurs. Uh, and, but I think that's something that a lot of people don't really grasp about his films. Yeah, I um, I was talking to a, a couple of my friends recently, uh, Matt and Ava. It's a married couple, and they've been watching you know a lot of films during all this shutdown. And, and they made that point to me. They were talking actually about the Rocky films, and Ava had never seen them until recently. And and they were just talking about you know watching them. They were like, it's not really a a film about boxing. It's a film about you know humans and 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 humanity and and that human condition and and they were saying that the best films are that way. And that's, that's true. And I think that about jaws, you know, on the surface, it's a movie about a, about a giant shark, but really it's, it's a movie about humanity. And it, that is what makes it so relatable. And in large part, what makes this such a, an everlasting film. Uh, and one thing that I think is absolutely hilarious. Originally Spielberg was not, going to be the director of jaws yeah uh, it was supposed to be uh according to the show notes dick richards yeah. but i i remember watching this part in the in the uh, making up feature app 
apparently he kept referring to the shark as a whale. Yeah. <laughs> and at that point, the producers just realized that he was not a good fit. So they ended up calling in Spielberg. In but I was like, can you imagine what would have happened if this had not been directed by Spielberg? Well, yeah, I mean, it, because and I, I don't know a lot about the other gentleman and, and his work. I mean, it might have been great. Who knows? But I mean, you know, might not have been if he kept saying about a whale. But like, you know, in the hands of someone without the vision of Spielberg, this is a movie about a fish. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I, I think it needs the right. It needs all the right elements, and having Spielberg at the helm is a major part of that. Yeah, uh, and just from because I'm not super familiar with Dick Richards' uh, uh, his filmography, I did uh, pull it up. He was the producer of Tootsie. Oh, and his direction credits include the Culpepper Cattle Company. Rafferty and the Gold Dust Twins, Farewell, My Lovely, March or Die, Death Valley, Man, Woman, and Child, and Heat. Heat, like the one I'm thinking about? The Heat with uh, De Niro and Pacino? Uh, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> Heat starring Burt Reynolds and Karen Young. Okay. Yeah, from so I'm not, super, I'm not super familiar with any of those. Farewell, My Lovely, um... I read the book, but yeah. The only one I know is is Tootsie, and he didn't direct that. He was the producer. Uh, but yeah, I, I think uh, in the hands of a less visionary director, a less competent director, this would just be a movie about a fish. Yeah. Uh, but what Spielberg did was he took that that concept that and he had that just kind of be the uh, the kind of crux of the story that kind of props up the more important elements. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and really, you know, Spielberg was an important element, but, but you know, this movie from the moment that it, this movie has been a, a phenomenon from day one. I mean, you know, and so there was the book by one of the screenwriters, Carl Gottlieb, who I mentioned a minute ago. I'm probably not pronouncing his last name right, but it was called The Jaws Log that came out, you know, simultaneously with the film that was a book all about the making of the movie. And this movie is just such an interesting combination of all these different people and all these different ideas and all these things coming together that, that the very making of it has fascinated audiences ever since 75, ever since it came out. And speaking of books, you have actually read the book of Jaws. Yeah, I um, I chose it as my uh, beach vacation read last summer when me and my family went to the beach last year. I read Jaws while I was down there. Yeah, it was great. I really liked it a lot. Um, you know, it's it's different than the movie in some places and in other places it's similar. I will say, and this is no offense to the novel, which I really enjoyed, um, but this is one of the few instances I can think of when I think that I prefer the film to the book that it's based on. Um, that's not, that's no offense to the book, which I thought was fantastic. It's just, I love the movie that much that I, I think the movie did everything right with the story. And I'm wondering if you can dive a little bit into some of the differences 
in the book and the film and kind of what you enjoyed more about the film. Yeah. So um, for, for one thing with the book, there are a couple of different subplots. So um, there is just some background information. The, the, the filmmakers intentionally decided they wanted to cut out some of the subplots and um, focus on the, adventure elements and the the relationship between the three main characters um one of you know i don't want to give too many spoilers away about the book but it's been out for a while i mean there is a subplot uh revolving around the mafia and so the mayor instead of just his his concerns we see in the film about the economy the mayor also like has the mob tied up in some of his business dealings. And so he's even more insistent upon, you know, not shutting down the economy because he's got mobsters going to come for him. And then there's also a uh, romance between Ellen Brody and, um, and Hooper, Matt Hooper, which I just think leaving that out allowed the characters interactions to be more, enjoyable for the film and also just the idea that that they did decide to really focus on the adventure elements and focus on those three characters going out on a quest after the shark um and then the final thing is that the so quint is one of my all-time favorite fictional characters i just think robert shaw in this is the best and quint is so good and the story about him being a survivor of the USS Indianapolis is in the film, but not in the book. And I just think that adds a lot to the film. I agree. I, I think that gave so much depth, not only to his character, but the the film overall. And what's, what's really neat is it almost feels like two films even yes. though Jaws is very cohesive, right? So there's the first part when they're on the when they're on the island, and then once they get on the Orca, that's when it almost kind of has that uh, the what I like to call the Full Metal Jacket, yeah, <laughs> uh, vo- <laughs> the Full Metal Jacket syndrome, where it almost feels like a different film. But uh, one key difference is that in, in, with Jaws, I still feel like it's cohesive. Yes. Uh, with with Full Metal Jacket, I felt like it was a little jarring. Uh, but I, it's hard for me to pick which half of the film I like more. But I absolutely love when they get on the when they get on the boat, because I think that is when you really start to understand. Okay, so this is a movie. This is not a movie about the sh- about a fish. This is not about a shark. Yeah. This is about uh, these characters. It's about humanity. Yes. Um, and that one scene when they're all kind of exchanging different. Uh, different scars so that cool. it kind of gives you this entirely different perspective on actually all three of the uh, all three of the characters is when they also ha- uh, begin to have evolving perspectives about one another and when they bond and become kind of a cohesive whole yeah absolutely man it's such a it's just masterful writing and i love you know, they're having a good time because before that, like you said, they've they've kind of especially um, Quint and Hooper have been kind of bickering at each other the whole time. Uh, and then they kind of, you know, have a few drinks and they start showing scars and kind of relating to one another. And they get so comfortable with one another that they're talking about 
um, Quint's scar where he had his tattoo removed. And Hooper says, what did it say, Mom? You know, and he's kind of laughing and cutting up. And you can see Robert Shaw, just such a great performance. You can just see his face. He's very understanding with Hooper. He doesn't get mad at him, but he just kind of looks over and says, Mr. Hooper, that's the USS Indianapolis. And you can just feel like the air suck out of the the, the boat. Uh, it's just, and then he goes on his little uh, monologue and it's just, it's such a powerful moment. What's incredible there is the tone shifts so abruptly, but it's very seamless. Yes. It feels real. It, it does. Because, I mean, everyone has had some kind of moment like that, right? Yeah. You know, you're making a joke about something and, and suddenly it becomes serious or, some, or something like that. Yeah, it's, again, I think it comes back to just how relatable this film is. Yeah. And, and Quint, from the moment that he, he comes on screen, is a very, uh, he's a very colorful character. Yes. When he's first introduced, I love the scene. Uh, there's this town meeting and you just see this hand and you hear these fingernails on a chalkboard and it's Quint. And he, he brags that he will, uh, find the shark for, I think it was 5,000 and kill it for 10. 3,000 is the initial offer from Miss Kentner. And he says he'll find it for that, but he'll catch it and kill it for 10. Okay, that's what it was. I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't remember exactly how much it was. Yeah, <laughs> but I knew. I knew he said he'd find and kill it for ten. <laughs> and then he's just sort of dismissed and, and leaves. But Brody decides uh, wisely to take him up on that offer. Yeah, uh, and then throughout the f- film, he it seemed like uh, Robert Shaw ad libbed a lot of those lines. Yeah, and there was a local guy whose name I can't remember right now, but he's actually in the movie as, uh, I think, Ben Gardner is the character's name. Um, but there was a local fisherman who apparently kind of came and hung out with Robert Shaw and like told him all about, apparently told him a lot of lies and exaggerated, well, fisherman's tales about the island and uh, and kind of served as a model for, for Robert Shaw um, to kind of nail down the character of Quint, which I think is interesting. And you can see that guy in the movie. He's uh, wearing a like an orange hat and a camo jacket. Yeah. And some of his lines, here's just women with bow-legged women. Oh, yeah. It's so great. That whole that character is so great. And when he sings his little uh, sea shanty over and over again, I, I man, I just love the character of Quint so much. Farewell, do do You fair Spanish ladies. I love it. Well, and do you ladies of Spain. Spain. <laughs> yeah, he just he feels like a very real character. Yes. Oh, so good. And so and so well acted. Um, another thing that's interesting to me. So we haven't really gone into it yet. We've talked about what a wonderful masterpiece this movie is, which is 100 percent correct. But, you know, one of the things that makes it so interesting that it came out to be such a phenomenon is that apparently it was a real mess behind the scenes and like just all kinds of problems. And, uh, you know, in one of the interviews I saw, Dreyfus basically said, like, when we finished this thing, I just knew it was going to be a disaster and I never thought it was going to be successful. But one of the stories I'd always heard and always stands out to me is the the kind of strained relationship between Dreyfus and uh, Robert Shaw. And from what I've heard in interviews, apparently it was very similar to the relationship between Quint and Hooper. So I, I think that had to have contributed to the realness of 
what we see on the screen because apparently Robert Shaw was just always kind of like talking down to Dreyfus and was always kind of like challenging him. And uh, one story Dreyfus said that Shaw was like, Oh, you can't dive off the top of the, off the top of the Orca. You couldn't do a dive into the water off the top of the Orca. And, and Dreyfus was like, I, I, I definitely could. I definitely could. And then he was like, and it turns out I couldn't. And then another time, for some reason, Robert Shaw said something about how you couldn't do, you couldn't do 10, 10 good pushups. And Dreyfus said, I could do 20 good pushups. And, uh, and Robert Shaw was like, you couldn't do 20 good pushups. And then once again, Dreyfus said he was right. I couldn't. So I just think it's funny that apparently he was always kind of nagging at him, but Dreyfus always speaks about him with a great deal of respect as an actor and a writer. Yeah, that was something that I didn't discover until I I started doing research for the show notes. But I think you're totally correct. I think that contributes a lot to the uh, the initial animosity between the two, uh, which in the film, the reason that there's a lot of uh, bad blood between them is that Quint... uh, assumes that Hooper is just this uh, kind of rich kid with a bunch of uh, high-end gear, like a really nice boat and whatnot. And uh, he, he really plays up the socioeconomic divide between the two. Yeah. Uh, There's that one part when he's like, show me your hands, Mr. Hooper. You got city Uh, hands. Yeah. Money all your life kind of insinuates that he that he hasn't worked a day in his life yeah. uh and, but yeah i, I guess uh, i think the kind of off-screen tension um s- kind of seeped into the film a lot in that regard but to uh uh but yeah to his credit um dreyfus talks very highly of, of robert shaw uh, and apparently looked at him as kind of like a mentor yeah which despite- i think is really cool yeah, no, I mean that. I think that really speaks to how talented uh, Robert Shaw was. Yeah. Uh, but with that, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we will keep talking about Jaws. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. This is Universal's extraordinary motion picture version of Peter Benchley's best-selling novel, Jaws. I just found out that a girl got killed here last week. And you knew it. You knew there was a shark out there. You knew it was dangerous. But you let people go swimming anyway. Barracuda. Devices. Huh? What? 
You yelled shark? We've got a panic on our hands on the 4th of July. Is it true that most people get attacked by sharks in three feet of water, about 10 feet from the beach? Yeah. What we are dealing with here is a perfect engine, uh, an eating machine. We're not only going to have to close the beach, we're going to have to hire somebody to kill the shark. Bad fish. But I'll catch him and kill him. Did you hear your father out in the water now? This shark? Swallow you whole. You're going to need a bigger boat. That's a 20-footer. 25. Three tons of them. Hold it up. He's coming straight for us. Don't screw it up now. Don't wait for me. Now! Shoot! fantasies of evil can compare with the reality of Jaws. Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfus, Jaws. See it before you go swimming. Hey guys, we're back and we're discussing the 1975 classic Jaws. So this film, as we kind of touched upon a little bit earlier, and by touched upon, I mean gushed over for the first entire half of this episode, has had a ton of staying power and really has solidified itself as a classic in cinema. And I want to talk a bit about why that is. And to me, it's just that it's a technical marvel across the board with the uh, you know, the characters that we discussed a little bit, but also the the effects and the soundtrack. Yeah, agreed. Uh, I mean, the shark still looks realistic. And the the guy who did the effects for that, uh, so he actually worked on Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Yeah, uh, his name was Robert Matty. I don't know. Have you have you seen that one, the Walt Disney Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea? You know, confession. I don't think I have, and if I have, I don't remember it. But I was I found that in my research as well that it was the same guy who created the uh, the famous uh, beast from that movie. Yeah, the giant squid. So yeah. that growing up was one of my favorite films and I am actually due for a rewatch of that. Uh, absolutely love it. Wonderful, wonderful adaptation. And yeah, I, I thought the, that jaws, the, the shark held up really well. Uh, I recently uh, bought a four case steel book of jaws and the transfer is just, gorgeous with these colors that are really popping and it it really kind of stuck out in my mind how visually pleasing the film is and how the effects haven't really aged because i mean it's not like this is a new movie it came out in 
1975. Yeah, I agree with you. And that this brings up a question that I really wanted to ask you. And I think you basically just answered the question, which was I wanted to say. So uh, on the set and, and the documentary that I watched about the making of the film was was titled based on a famous line that was said over and over again, which is the shark is not working because at first they had so many problems with this mechanical shark. Uh, and then eventually, finally, somebody said, the shark is working. Uh, and so the, the documentary is called The Shark is Still Working. But my question for you was, does the shark work? And I think it sounds like you just answered in the in the affirmative. Oh, yeah, I, I think it works really well, uh, particularly that scene at the end when it, it it's devouring the orca. And it ends up eating Quint. And also, of course, the iconic scene where you see the shark kind of pop out of the water when they're throwing the chum in and Brody just says, yes. you're going to need a bigger boat. Yep. Which apparently was, uh, it's a very famous piece of cinema history that it was ad-libbed, although uh, reportedly he had tried ad-libbing that and Spielberg wanted to have it in the film and so he tried it in different scenes and that was the scene that it really fit in yeah I, but I, I do like the fact that because shooting went on for for so long that they were able to kind of play with their characters a little bit and stuff like that but yeah that, that question about whether the shark works I'm, I'm glad you said that that you think the shark looks great I 100% agree. I feel like any time that I bring this movie up and, and I talk about how much I love it and think it's, you know, just this perfect, flawless movie, people will point out, you know, the shark. And for me, I think the shark looks great. I mean, especially considering the technology at the time. I mean, when this movie was first um, approached, I think it was, shoot, now I'm not going to get his name right. Is it... Uh, so it's Zurich and Brown, and I don't—I can't remember Brown's first name right now. But he was in uh, one of the interviews I saw, and he said basically, if we had read the book twice, we would have never agreed to do it because of how difficult it was going to be to shoot all this stuff—a big shark coming up and destroying the the boat. He was like, "How are we going to do that?" Because at the time, obviously, there's no CGI. You know, he was like, "We can't train a shark to do this," so they had to like basically just do something new to create this shark. I just think the, the combination of it being just a technical marvel for the time and honestly looking pretty great, in my opinion, are, is just uh, really baffling to me. It's astounding to me. I, I just, I love it. I agree. I'm, I'm glad the, the, the shark still works for you too. And in fact, I, so to prepare for this episode, I, felt like I, it would be it would not be doing the episode justice if I didn't kind of watch a few shark films to kind of get in the the mood. One of them was Deep Blue Sea. And I actually love that film. I think it's one of the better shark films uh, to come out in the wake of Jaws. But the shark in Jaws looks far more realistic than the sharks in Deep Blue Sea. Yeah. And Deep Blue Sea came out I I can't remember ninety eight something something like that. I've never seen that one, but I'm assuming there's CG sharks in that. Yeah, and they just they weren't all that convincing. Yeah, that era of CG was pretty rough. I've never seen that, but I think the other thing to me about the shark that makes it work so well 
is the fact that since the shark had all these mechanical problems and they had trouble with it, and part of the time when they were shooting the movie, they didn't even have the shark on location uh, because it wasn't ready. It required them to be creative and and film a lot of scenes without actually showing the shark. You only see the shark a few times. And to me, that kind of subtle implied horror when done right is always the best kind. I, I just think it really adds to it. And in some of the interviews I heard Spielberg kind of said, you know, that he wanted to do it that way. And I don't know, maybe he did, but, but in other interviews I've heard it said that that was basically, they had to because you know, the shark just wouldn't cooperate a lot of times. And I just think that if that's true, that's one of the happiest accidents because just implying the presence of the shark through music and through in one scene him tearing off a piece of the dock and the dock being there and another scene the barrels attached to the shark just makes it so much more effective when you do see it totally and it kind of hammering home that point that this is a film that's supposed to be grounded in the real world and, and very relatable it's not like the shark has any sort of supernatural abilities. Yeah. Right. It's just a really enormous menacing shark. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the score there kind of about the, the audio cues. Yeah. Because uh, I think it would be remiss to not talk about the soundtrack because 100%. Jaws is one of those fascinating films where, the soundtrack is equally, if not more famous than the film itself. Like there are people who have never seen Jaws, but they're familiar with its iconic uh, John Williams composed score. I would say legit. Almost everybody is at least familiar with the theme of this movie. Yeah. You'd be hard pressed to find a person that you couldn't go in the water and go, Dun, dun, and they know what you're talking about. And you know what? I'm I bet there are people who don't even know that's from Jaws, but still understand the association between that yes. and a shark. Yes. This movie is just part of the American landscape. It is. Or or the seascape, if you will. <laughs> uh and and what's fascinating is uh circling back to what we were talking about earlier about how this film is very multi-genre the soundtrack mimics that you know of course the the main theme has that kind of stalking sound where it's it almost you can close your eyes and almost see a shark's fin as it's you know stalking its prey and getting closer and closer and it starts out kind of slow like dun 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 and as it amplifies that kind of tension mounts but then there are other moments on uh in the score where even just listening to it like if you you know pop your your record on the turntable you understand even without seeing the visuals the visual cues the scene uh, that the music is paired with you understand that it's kind of one of those more uh adventuresome moments it's yes. more kind of joyous yes yeah it's it's perfect like that i mean it's, uh, you know, I was listening to the score right before we started recording and, um, and reading the liner notes in the, from the 
new the new Mondo vinyl release, which is super cool. Uh, and it was so great to read those liner notes and hear, you know, read clips of John Williams talking about what it was like to score this film and all that. Um, but a lot of it is, you know, plays around the shark theme and all the, the tension and suspense. But you're right. There are there are moments that are clearly very lighthearted when it needs to be. There are moments that are real strong adventure music a lot of that's associated with you know quint and the orca and you know setting out to sea and all that uh, in the film but even just listening to the music uh it just is kind of a creates a mental picture it's a powerful music yeah it really does so i'm curious do you think that jaws would still be as enjoyable and as powerful if it didn't have the soundtrack i think it would still be a fine film i think it would still be as we've talked we've talked about kind of a lot of the vision behind it that makes it bigger than just a a movie about a shark but at the same time it if it didn't have one of the most perfect scores ever written for film i don't think it would be as powerful as it is now i mean that's what makes jaws jaws it's just the it's just this perfect melding of all these different um, elements and, and a big one of the main ingredients is that iconic score. I mean, really, truly one of the great, greatest film scores ever. What do you think? I agree with you. I still think it would be a good film, but I don't think it would be the perfect storm of different elements from cinematography to the the melding of genres acting that it ended up being without the score yeah because it really contributes to the concrete sense of place that jaws establishes yeah and um one one funny story uh about the score that i think is hilarious is that you know um uh, Spielberg was a fan of John Williams music uh, before John Williams, you know, scored this, this movie. And then of course they went on to, uh, well, they had worked on, I think, so I've never seen Sugarland Express, but I know that John Williams was at least involved in that. I don't know if he wrote the score or was it involved. I don't know. But anyways, I think he wrote it. But so for this movie, um, Spielberg had kind of made some notes and he had used some of John Williams's older music from other films is kind of like a, a, a sounding board, kind of a, a guide for what he wanted it to sound like. And he, he sent a few things to John Williams and John Williams was like, I don't think any of that's right. I'll write you some music and I'll let you hear it when I'm, when I'm ready. And Spielberg was like, okay, you know, I trust you. And Spielberg came to the studio. Uh, John Williams called him up and said, I have it. I have the theme for jaws. And Spielberg came to his studio and, uh, John Williams sat down at a piano and went to the low notes and just went, Dun dun, dun dun, and apparently Spielberg thought it was a joke. Like he was like laughing, and he thought that John Williams was like pranking him. And he was like, "Wait, is that it?" And John Williams was like, "Trust me, this is the this is the Jaws theme." It's just really simple, but incredibly effective. It's a it's a movie that plays on our primal fears, and it has a primal sounding theme. Totally. And also to answer your question, yes, John Williams did compose the soundtrack okay. to right. the Sugarland Express, which I would highly recommend checking out. Yeah, I had like the pleasure that. of watching that uh, actually at, no surprise there, a retro film series screening. 
maybe a year or two ago. And uh, yeah, once once things open back up, uh, all you celluloid fiends faithful, di- go hit up Carolina Theater if you have not already done so. And if you are a Carolina Theater regular, keep going. And if you are not in our immediate era uh, era area, uh, check them out on Facebook because they're still doing those uh, those online watch parties right now. There's people tuning in from all over the country, which is really cool. Yeah, it kind of keeps that spirit of camaraderie alive among cinephiles like us. Yeah, it's rad. and uh, there's screenings of all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, uh, but back to Jaws. One Duh. part of its legacy that I think is is very tough to ignore is the way that it spawned a an entire franchise, but it also kicked off a bunch of different imitators, some more successful than others. Yeah. So I am curious what some of your favorite and least favorite Jaws clones are yeah so i think just the concept of like movie clones is really fascinating anyway like i always love to watch like kind of the diehard clones and the karate kid clones and stuff like that um and so uh, obviously jaws has its many imitators uh so my top five shark exploitation films um i'm gonna go with number one monster shark aka devilfish no surprise here that it's an italian movie uh it is um it's crazy i saw it at a retro film screening um last summer uh i found out after the fact i think that it was directed by lamberto bava and the score was done by my favorite fabio fritzi uh both using pseudonyms but it's just this kind of weird shark movie um where it is sort of a Jaws ripoff, but the shark, the the titular monster shark, is some kind of mutated monster that also has like weird tentacles. It's just really crazy. And of course, the music is phenomenal because Fritzy wrote it. So that's Monster Shark, also called Devilfish. Uh, number two on my list, I'm putting Grizzly. Uh, it's one I watched somewhat recently, and it's basically just Jaws on land, uh, which I don't. I didn't memorize the tagline, but the the has a very famous tagline that's that's something like that. It's the most dangerous Jaws on land or something. So uh, no surprise there that it was a, a Jaws clone. Uh, but Grizzly, number three, I'm going to go with Piranha 2, The Spawning. Uh, the piranha in that one can fly at you, so watch out. Uh, and then number four, I put Jaws 3D. Uh, I know it's another Jaws sequel, not necessarily a Jaws clone, but it's just a lot of fun. Uh, I did get to go see it at the Retro at the Carolina Theater uh, last summer once again, or maybe two years ago, actually. Uh, and they showed it in 3D, which was awesome. Um, so jo- I, lo- I love cheesy 3D movies. So Jaws 3D is pretty great. And then number five, I'm taking it back to Italy, and I'm uh, putting The Last Shark, a.k.a. Great White, which was a Jaws clone that was such a clone that Universal successfully sued for plagiarism and had it removed from U.S. theaters after a very short uh, run. I really need to watch that one. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's on Amazon Prime right now. So and and really good music once again, as I expect from those those little uh, Italian horror films. 
Because that anecdote alone just really piques my interest. <laughs> it's pretty interesting. I mean, it's a Jaws. It's a clone of Jaws and Jaws 2. That's all it is. But it's fun and it's worth watching. And the music's great. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to add that one to my list. Uh, so I actually really love a lot of Jaws imitators, although I don't think any of them even come close to the original. Oh, yeah, no way. But at number one, I'm going to go with The Shallows. Okay. Which came out a few years back. It stars Blake Lively. And I was pleasantly surprised by this film. It's not necessarily the the deepest, but the cinematography is gorgeous. And uh, it's just a very well shot film. It's kind of pure eye candy with a lot of the underwater cinematography. Number two and a very close second is Deep Blue Sea. That, I think, is a very underappreciated film, and I think one of the better shark films, I think that and The Shallows are probably the two best shark attack films since Jaws. Uh, Deep Blue Sea is just completely over the top, but it has some very well-executed and surprising moments in it. Uh, it has a phenomenal cast and it's just so totally over the top, but really embraces that quality about itself and doesn't shy away from it. So I think it does that. It accomplishes that well. At number three, I'm going to go with the Meg, which is one that I just got around to watching recently. I didn't think it was a perfect film, I thought it was a little paint by the numbers, but it stars Jason Statham and the plot revolves around a megalodon that has been unearthed in the, in the depths of the ocean and basically goes jaws on this research facility and kind of like deep blue sea is just completely and totally off the wall insane. Uh, and then I'm going to go with piranha 3d for number four. Oh. which came out in 2010. It's really not a great film, but <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I've i watched it many times on like the sci-fi channel and, and rented it and whatnot. And it's just, it's just good campy fun. Uh, and <laughs> when you, when you listed that, I don't mean to jump in when you listed that in the show notes, I definitely didn't know you were talking about the reboot piranha. <laughs> I thought oh you were yeah. About the OG. That's no, I'm go I'm going with the reboot, which is, is very controversial. I, I would guess. And it, it's sequel. It's sequel, which was called uh piranha, uh, piranha double D. Isn't that what it was called or something like that? The second. Yeah, one? <laughs> it was, it was something like that. <laughs> Um, but you know, for, for what it is, it's a fun film. I need to see it. I, um, I'm a big Paul Shear fan and I'm pretty sure he's, he was in both of them and I've heard him talk about it on his podcast. So I need, I need to check it out. I've actually never seen either of the, the reboot piranhas. Uh, yeah, I think they're just, they're good fun. It's nothing to write home about, but they're fun. And then, uh, the number five, I'm going with Jaws 2. Yeah. Which kind of like you you said for Jaws three, uh, it's not really an imitator, but I I, I love Jaws two. I think it's a very underappreciated film. It is a decided step down from the original in a number of ways. Like it doesn't have that all star cast. The effects actually uh, took a a major step down. But one thing that I thought really made it a very compelling film was it 
probes Brody's PTSD after the first film. Yeah. Really well. And also it has some batshit moments like when uh, Jaws takes down a helicopter, which has since been replicated in several films, including Deep Blue Sea. And The Last Shark. (laughs) So, you know, even though it was not... Uh, as highly regarded as the first film, just like the original Jaws, uh, the sequel continued to kind of be a trendsetter. And then uh, one I'm going to throw in there, kind of like you did with, uh, uh, I think it was Grizzly, but one one that I'm going to throw in that was not a shark film is Jurassic Park. Yeah. Which definitely has that kind of same element. There are multiple creatures which are, are are stalking their prey but it, it it's that spielbergian formula that just works ridiculously well where there are these characters there's a lot of character evolution and truthfully it's not a movie about the dinosaurs the dinosaurs are there purely as the kind of yarn that holds the plot together and it's really about the different characters and uh, and their evolution as the film progresses you know that's one i don't that's one i don't return to nearly enough and you until you said that i had never thought about that kind of following in the formula of jaws i it's very interesting to me i I need to revisit jurassic park yeah because it it really does although i don't think uh and this is no disrespect to its its cast but um I think this was more kind of a writing issue, but I don't feel like the characters were necessarily as as deep in Jurassic Park as they were in Jaws, right? Like you don't have that USS Indianapolis moment. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it's still kind of that concept of uh, uh I can't I can't remember his name, but Sam Neill's character in there. So at the beginning he, you know, really doesn't want to have kids and he's talking about how they're stinky and whatnot. And then he ends up uh, really becoming very uh, uh, caring about the two. um, I think it was Hammond, uh, the two kids that he's leading through the park. And, and so there's that aspect. Uh, Yeah. So I I think there is a, a, a decent amount of kind of the jaws factor in Jurassic park where it's more a film about the characters. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I do need to go back. I mean, that movie was uh, uh, Jaws. Obviously, came out before either of us were born. But I remember when I was when I was a kid, like Jurassic Park was a, a, a phenomenon. I mean, it was just it was everywhere, and it continues to really remain a, a pretty well regarded yes. film. I yeah. remember. There was like a 3D re-release in theaters a couple of years back, and I totally went to see it. Uh, and yeah, like Jaws, I mean, the the effects hold up, and it's got that John Williams composed soundtrack too. It, which is amazing, yeah. Yeah. The man, um, the man can do no wrong. No, he really couldn't. Uh, and... I mean, one thing that I, I think really kind of sums up how powerful uh, Jaws was and is 
this was the first movie to achieve 100 million uh, in theatrical rentals. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, and it was the highest grossing film of all time in the United States until 1977 when it was replaced by Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. Jaws basically created the concept of the summer blockbuster, right? I mean, it really laid the foundation for uh, what would go on to become uh, the idea of the summer blockbuster. I mean, it was distributed to something like 400 cinemas all across the country, which at the time was a very wide release. Uh, It had all of this marketing like all this money launched into marketing and and tv ads and uh a targeted marketing campaign with the novel kind of having a matching cover to the poster because the novel was coming out at you know basically the same time um it was just a, a real intentionally targeted cultural phenomenon that just hit like a tidal wave uh one thing that i think was interesting is um lou wasserman at universal apparently they had they had originally wanted to launch it in something like 900 cinemas and wasserman was like cut it in half and everybody at first was like what do you mean and he's like i want people standing in lines outside this the theater trying to get into this movie uh and it turned out to be right because you know his idea was that some of the best advertising for a movie would just be images of people standing in line trying to get in to see this movie jaws um and so he actually had him cut in half the number of cinemas that it was going to be released in that's fascinating uh and you don't even have to take just our word for it according to guinnessworldrecords.com jaws is considered the first summer blockbuster and that's i think an element about this film that kind of gets overlooked when even when discussing its legacy, right? You know, we tend to talk about uh, a lot of the technical aspects that make it a masterpiece and kind of dive into the way that it kickstarted a franchise and inspired a bunch of uh, imitators, but it, it tends to be glossed over that this created the the concept of a summer blockbuster so then yeah. all these films followed that and, and were marketed in a way that uh you know studios actually believe these could become huge hits so it revolutionized the film industry as well yeah it's wild to think about and i'll say this uh i obviously can't offer any definitive proof that jaws played such a big role in our country's shark culture. But I mean, America is to some, to uh, some extent obsessed with sharks. I mean, the most current uh, kind of iteration of that is shark week. I mean, people treat shark week like it's a federal holiday and I, I can't help but think that the success and the legacy of jaws is what brings us things like shark week. I think you're very correct in that because, uh, I mean, what does Shark Week do? It breaks down a lot of the kind of myths and misconceptions that people have about sharks. And I think a lot of that comes from cinema and, and from TV, which was popularized by Jaws. 
And, you know, it's kind of interesting because Peter Benchley, the um, author, has, you know, when I was reading the book, um, I was reading like a special edition of the book and it had some, you know, some thoughts in there, some editorial thoughts from Peter Benchley. And he was saying that one of the things he regrets the most is that his his novel and the uh, film based on it, at, at least initially, the reaction was to make people afraid of sharks and to think of sharks as which I mean, you know, they are dangerous, but was to make people have this like intense fear uh, of sharks. Uh, but Peter Benchley is a is a an environmentalist and a conservationist, and he he does a lot of work with, you know, trying to save the sharks basically and 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 conserve the sharks and so now uh in one of the documentaries i was watching he was talking about how happy he is that kind of that legacy has kind of come around and instead of people just seeing sharks as something out of a nightmare i mean we realize that they can be very dangerous but people are more interested in in them as just you know uh, uh these wonderful creatures in nature that you know can be studied and should be respected and to bring up Jurassic Park again, you know, don't fear the sharks. Like you shouldn't fear the dinosaurs. Uh, just you know, have uh, an understanding and a respect for what that creature is. Yeah, I think Benchley in one of the interviews said that his his uh, his opinion was the shark doesn't hate you; it just wants to eat you. you exactly. Like- <laughs> exactly. Uh, so with that, why don't we rate this? Okay. Um, this one should be a pretty easy one for me to rate, but you know, been thinking a lot about it and, um, on a scale of zero to five, I think like a 15, right? Seems fair. This movie like a 15. Uh, I think that's a little low. <laughs> I, I think I'm going to go with 20 on a, yeah. on a scale of zero to five. No, but I mean, in all seriousness, uh, this is a five star movie. It is just... It's just such a masterpiece when you hear all the stories about all the uh, the just disastrous filming process. Uh, it's amazing that it came to be what it is, but it's a movie where directing, casting, writing, acting, music, setting all come together to create what the celluloid fiends have both determined is the perfect film. This is a five star movie, hands down. Yeah, I I agree. Five stars all the way. Uh, normally, even if I give something five stars, I try to at least think of some kind of critique. And I mean, I can't think of anything to critique with this film, uh, especially if you know about the history of how it was made, like you were saying there, Wes, and, and a lot of the uh, technical challenges that went on behind the scenes. Uh, I think you just have to appreciate this film even more, uh, particularly because of how well it was received at the time and how its legacy continues. Uh, You know, it really continues to make waves uh, after all these years. And I think it will only continue to do so in the future as well. And as, as you said earlier, it's, it's a movie that still impacts people now. Like when people see it now, you're talking about your friend. I mean, it, it still has that impact. I mean, it's not been lessened by time. It's not one of those movies where people are like, oh, it was great, you know, uh, however many, back in 1975. It's it's great now. Yeah. Uh, there are even some scenes that as many times as I watch this film, even when I am, am expecting it, it kind of still makes me jump. Notably, when uh, when there's that kind of jump scare in the, in the water, 
uh, with with the with the guy's head. Yeah. Oh man. Yes. <laughs> that gets me every time. You know that was filmed in a swimming pool in California. That shot. Well, it worked marvelously. In one of the documentaries I was watching, they showed the pool. And it's just like this little this little backyard pool behind somebody's house. And they use that to shoot that scene. It's just so crazy to think about. But yeah, it's a wonderful and, and very effective shot. And, and you're right. One of the, the most shocking in, in, the, in the film. Um, as always, I feel like I uh, like to throw in a little quote or something that I've found towards the end of the episode. And uh, one quote that just really jumped out to me was uh, David Brown, whose name I couldn't think of earlier. One of the producers, uh, Zanuck and Brown, David Brown said, I like to think of it as a big independent movie masquerading as a big studio movie. And I thought that was a pretty good description of Jaws. I really liked that. I think that does sum it up really well. Yeah. Because especially if you look at the trajectory of Spielberg's career, he had he'd had some successful films uh, prior to Jaws, including Duel and, and the Sugarland Express, but nothing that was really this huge blockbuster, partially because that really hadn't been invented yeah. until Jaws came around. But even though it was a uh, you know a huge blockbuster, it had an just a mind-boggling return on investment it does have that kind of indie feel to it and that's not to say cheap i think oftentimes there can be uh an untrue notion that indie means cheap definitely not true but it it just feels very grassroots yeah i I thought about what when we were doing the the zombie 2 episode and you mentioned about how how much you love guerrilla filmmaking i mean listening to the stories about this movie being filmed i mean you know the the budgetary difference between this movie and zombie 2 was was staggering but a lot of the inventiveness and creative stuff they had to do to to get to the screen what they wanted uh really reminded me of that kind of guerrilla style filmmaking just them out there wanting to put something on the screen and coming up with a way to do it yeah and and i think a lot of that kind of derived from the very ambitious vision for jaws and also i mean just filming on the water yeah you know whether it's on the ocean itself or in a swimming pool comes with its slate of difficulties and that was another thing about this movie though i mean i mentioned that that one scene was shot later in a swimming pool but the majority of this movie was like you said was shot on the ocean and apparently that was a pretty novel idea at the time you know one of the things i saw was they were talking about how most people would have probably shot this on some lake or you know on some kind of constructed soundstage pool thing but uh but much to apparently his later chagrin because of all the problems it caused spielberg was very insistent on shooting this out on the ocean and you know what, though, it all paid off. Oh, absolutely. It really did. It's very it's very immersive. 100%. So that is our show for the night. Uh, thank you guys for listening. You can follow us at Celluloid Fiends on Facebook and Twitter, as well as Celluloid Fiends Pod on Instagram. And if you haven't already done so, head over to iTunes and go ahead and subscribe, as well as leave us a rating and a review, because it helps us out quite a lot. And if you want to follow me, you can check me out at Mitchell C. Long on Twitter and Instagram. You can read my writing on film at cupofmo.com. And I write about a bunch of tech stuff at techuplife.com. And this is Wes Clifton signing out. Um, 
Mo was just saying, you know, if you like the show, make sure to leave us a rating and review. Also, another thing you can do if you want to help the show out is just tell a friend to check us out. You know, pick a movie that you think they might be interested in that we've talked about. I mean, who wouldn't be interested in Jaws? And just tell them to check us out. Uh, spread the word. But you can find me on uh, social media. You check me out on Instagram at Cliff Weston. Uh, and if you would like to read some of my fiction writing, I'll be really appreciative. Um, my website for that is wdclifton.wordpress.com, and it'll link you to all my uh, stories and stuff. And remember, celluloid fiends, be kind, rewind. Farewell and adieu to you fair Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu you ladies of Spain. For we've received orders for to sail back to Boston. And so never more shall we see you again. <laughs>